0: We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. <music>
1: What do you want to change? What do you want to bring to the table is
0: going to be really important. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 61. Steph and I speak today with Dr. Deepu Patel. Deepu is the Vice Chair for Innovation in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She has clinical experience in emergency medicine, urgent care, and HEMONC, and has served on several boards, including the Physician Assistant Education Association, the Governor's Advisory Council Task Force on Foreign-Born Healthcare Professionals in Massachusetts, and the Foreign-Trained Medical Professional Commission. She was brought to the University of Pittsburgh to help develop an innovative technology approach on digital tech and digital health uh, for the University of Pittsburgh, and we're excited to learn more about it today. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, papathpodcast.com. Steph, do you want me to, to kick it off and then you jump in? Yeah.
2: Yeah, that'd be perfect.
0: So, why don't we start with your path to becoming a PA? How did you end up coming into this profession?
1: So, I think my path is very similar to a lot of PAs who kind of entered the field around 20, 23 years ago. So, I've been a PA for 23 years. Um, and I actually didn't know anything about the profession um, until a friend of mine who was pursuing the profession at the encouragement of her parents and her family and was like, you know, I don't want to go to medical school. I didn't want to go to medical school. Um and I was like I don't know what to do. I was thinking about forensics and I was like I don't know. Um and she said what about PA? And I was like oh okay, let me look into it. And that was, you know, back then, you actually had to go to the office, like the dean's office where they kept all the pamphlets and the brochures <laughs> and read up on it, right? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and so I looked into it and I was like, you know what this sounds this sounds really good. It's it kind of checks all the boxes of what I want to do, which is patient care, diagnos- diagnosing, treating, uh, procedural skills and things like that. So I was like, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I applied to the one PA school, got into the one PA school. And, um, so it was not, it was competitive, but not as competitive, I think as it is these
0: Today. days. Yeah.
1: Um, and haven't looked back since, um, you know, I, I, then it was a certificate degree, so it was you know I got my bachelor's and my certificate at the same time. I had to go back to get my master's at UNMC, uh, which I did a few years later. At that time, they had just I, I very, very clearly remember our program director coming in as we were approaching graduation and saying, you know, we're trying to uh, we think that the profession is going to head towards a master's master's degree if you want we're kind of starting to partner with i forget the name of the university it was in new york and if you want to do another year you can get your masters and get it out of the way and at that time we were also fried that i think only one or two yeah. of us took them up on it and then a few years later i went back and got my masters and then more recently my doctorate so That's it's awesome. been, you know nice lifelong learning as we has been instilled from the beginning
0: and we've been talking on the podcast a lot about the doctorate in the last uh, season so I, i'm curious What was kind of your motivator at this point in time, this long into your career to go back and get your doctorate?
1: So I think it was, it was very personal for me. As I said, I didn't, it's not the title that really I was pursuing. It was a skill set that I was looking to grow and build. And it was the, oddly enough, COVID provided me the personal uh, insights that I needed to do it. And so I kind of had started it when I was at my previous role and the, I had finished everything. I had written the first three chapters of my, and then I was about to roll out my survey Uh, to start doing some data collection and COVID hit and I had to pivot. I had to stop. And so that's where, you know, uh, I I went to Lynchburg and that's where I kind of pivoted and said, you know what, I need to finish this. Uh, It was important to me to kind of show my kids that I could start something and finish it. And so during COVID, we spent a lot of time, the three of us at the dinner table doing homework together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the kids saw me, they were like, you know, you're researching, you're writing, you're doing, you're doing homework, mom. And I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. So impetus was personal, but also important, uh, personal in the sense of showing my kids that learning doesn't stop, right? Yeah. It at whatever age and it's driven by your own curiosity and what you want to learn. But also I think it does, ha- it did help me see the, uh, see skills that I didn't know I had in me and learn how to apply them in a different way. And yeah. I, I will say, I'm not, I'm not saying that a doctorate is for everyone, but I do think pursuing it certainly does elevate the skills that you want to elevate for yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was I totally resisted it myself. And I had a Dean <laughs> that was encouraging me to do it. He just said, it's going to open more doors for you. And yeah. I thought, oh, I don't, this is ridiculous. I don't need this, but you're right. It it totally changes your mindset in so many different ways and, and provides you with just a uh, uh, additional knowledge and perspective that perhaps can contribute to conversations down the road. Yeah. How cool for you to imprint that for your kids, though, at that oh, moment in time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there, as I said, it, I think it was luck and circumstance, I guess, you know, because yeah. I, if I had pursued the original degree that I had, you know, the original um, dissertation that I had started, I don't think the kids would have been able to see the work that I that I was doing, where it was, it was really nice to have them kind of see that.
0: Yeah. And, Steph, yeah. I'm going to let you jump in in a second, but I have one last follow-up, which is we've been interviewing leaders for the, the new PA school in Arizona. And I, I'm, I'm always interested in what perspectives might have changed from your experience in your doctoral program. So is there something that you're pretty sure you understood and knew and were solid on that maybe going through the process of re-researching things and understanding things in a greater capacity changed your perspective? Or, um, or did it just solidify what you thought?
1: I think it solidified more of what I thought, which is more that I think you know, one of the things... So when I was pursuing the doctorate, I was at a healthcare tech startup. And that, that experience actually opened my eyes to see how narrow I was in terms of what contributions I could make um, mm-hmm. to the to the to the field. And so working in tech kind of expanded that viewpoint. and was it was there already, right? Like having been in leadership positions both in PA and non-PA realms, it's been something that I've been passionate about. But to really see how, those horizons can be expanded. And then in my current role as vice chair for innovation at the DPS program at Pittsburgh, it's even more so, right? Like it's the reason where I do think that pursuing it for your own reasons and the skills that you want to build for yourself, both personally and whatever angle you want to take of patient for patient care or education or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I, want, I want PAs to realize that it's not just about how many patients you see. And in academia, it's not about how many students you teach or mentor. There is an entire landscape out there that's beyond those two fields. Because I've talked to a lot of PAs who feel like I want to do something, but I don't know what else to do. Because in PA school, we're really taught clinical medicine. We're not taught much else. And I want, Expand that. And I think that's kind of what has given me, um, it's it solidified it. I knew that that's what I wanted, but it solidified that vision of like there should be leadership training for PAs in every PA program. You know, and I'm not saying that every PA needs to be a leader, but you should be aware of the skills that you may or may not have, or you may not be aware of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I lied, Steph. One last thing, which is <laughs> now that you've been through this. Would If you could have gone back in time and done a doctorate right after PA school or right after your master's, right after um, w- would you have done that? Or do you think there's real benefits to having experienced life as a PA for a decade or two before you went back?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's a decade or two, but I do think having mm-hmm. a lot of experience um, there certainly does help you. You know, PA school is so rigorous and grueling that i don't know if my brain could have handled handled the level of uh doctorate level work in that in that moment would i think would i tell students now who are entering the pro- profession to go pursue a doctorate right off the bat i i don't think so but it also depends on what they want to do sure. right what do they have and I, and mo- as our profession has gotten younger and younger i was 22 23 when i graduated high school which at that time was not the norm, right? Like at that time, it was in third, tw- late twenties, thirties was the norm. But as yeah. we've gotten younger as a profession, yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I would encourage everyone to do it, but I think I would encourage everyone to think about what their life goals are.
0: Yeah, good. Well, thank you. That that was really insightful.
2: Deepu, you uh, just made reference to one of your new positions, part of your your job yeah. at your current current place of work, and you and I have had some really interesting recent conversations around kind of innovation and trying to see around corners. And I think this is, this is a piece that I think um, not enough educators are talking about. And that is really trying to see around that corner of where is healthcare heading and how are we preparing our students to excel in the the new healthcare environment and and one of the pieces of your job that i know you're doing a lot of work around is is ai and how ai is going to change healthcare and how we might prepare students to you know to be able to work in in an environment where ai is a is a big part of healthcare so talk a little bit about kind of your vision for that and how we as you know as educators and as potential PA students are are should be thinking about you know what skill set we're going to need to to be successful in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. So yeah, AI I I would say AI falls under the umbrella of digital health. So I'll refer to it as digital health but you know telemedicine, telehealth, all AI, all of that kind of falls under that umbrella. Um and to me is you know we don't see patients the way we used to five years ago or 10 years ago. Like we have shifted as a culture, as a society, and definitely some of them are pandemic related, but, but a lot of the changes were coming. So the way I look at it is what are we doing to educate the next generation? And what does the future of healthcare look like five, 10, 15 years down the line? And, um, you know, I've joked with you about this, Stephanie, which is like, how do I want to be taken care of when I'm a cranky old lady, right? What is the technology that's going to allow the uh, the PAs of the future and the clinicians of the future make me feel like I'm really cared for and I'm the I'm a human being, but through the use of technology? And so one of those one of those visions like there there is a day not so far in the future where visits for uh, medicine and your routine care will be done through your TV. They will be done through remote patient monitoring. They, um, you will be prescribing apps to patients as first line uh, measures. But what are we doing to educate our students about that, right? Our students actually right now, if you, now forget our students, our, our practicing clinicians right now will have a patient come to them in a visit and say, you know, I've been monitoring my steps on, on this app, or here's my You know, I've been trying to manage my weight on this app. What do you think of this app? Is is it good? Uh, What do you think? And we don't have a valid answer for that right now. We're very early on in the evidence based evidence based um, recommendations for for these apps. But there's also a need for us to, as we educate the pipeline of students who are going to graduate in the next three, uh, you know, two, three, five, seven years, they're going to be up against this? How do you advise them? How do you prepare them? How do you make sure that the patient has your trust? And we all know how important trust has been, especially in light of the the pandemic kind of um, misinformation and disinformation and the politics of all of that have, have been. So, you know, I kind of look at it as if what does the future landscape of healthcare look like? Digital health is just one that I choose to focus on right now, but I think it'll also change. You know, it also makes the, these tools that we have make it even more imperative that we teach the soft skills to our students even better. Right. Because there's a lot of fear, right? There's fear of like, oh, we're going to lose our jobs, which is not going to happen. AI is good, not that good, not quite yet. Right. And, but I want to, I want to be able to educate students to be like, what, what is your clinical practice going to look like when it's augmented with AI and these tools that are, that are going to be ubiquitous in our practice settings? And that's the kind of the, the vision I have for these programs and partnerships that I'll develop in this role. And, you know, it doesn't, st- uh, telehealth, I think it has really taken on, uh, taken off, but that's just one piece of it. Right. And so one of the things that we do is integrate all of these sorts of teachings, telehealth and AI, and how do you infuse them into a curriculum that is already burdened, right? So. We really have to look at it as educators and curriculum developers of what really is needed, because I can tell you, I've, I've, I've worked at many programs and, you know, there's a lot of fluff that's put in there because a faculty member happens to have an expertise in that area. Right. It's great. It's my baby. Absolutely. I, I would love yeah. digital health to be in everything as my baby, right? But you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't teach it. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should because you have a passion for it, you shouldn't share that with your students. But how do you change that to include what the future practice is going to look like?
0: Deepu, do you think that um I mean you make some really valid points? And do you think that given that artificial intelligence, at least from what I've seen recently, is likely going to be a Tool that we use to expedite patients through a, you know, fairly chaotic process of getting answers for their healthcare, and and perhaps patients may be using, artificially intelligent portals to gain some narrowing of their symptoms and their complaints to, you know, the point when they they do a telehealth or a hologram or a metaverse appointment, we have AI given us a, a pretty good sense of what might be in the realm of the differential. So, do you yeah. think? When that happens, are we going to be able to cut back some of the medical knowledge components, you know, maybe skim off the top 10% so we'll have more room in the curriculum, or is the only way to do this to build more time into the curriculum?
1: I don't think building more time is, is first of all, I don't think it's feasible, because I okay. think if we start building more time into the curriculum, we're going to end up with uh, workforce shortages in the long run, which we already mm-hmm.
2: have, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think it is much like I said, where how is your clinical practice being augmented by this digital health? We're going to have to learn how to augment our curriculum with digital health, these tools. And I think you've alluded to chat GPT, I think is the one that you're kind of talking about. Now, I'm going to say I want to caution everyone about chat GPT because as as amazing as it is, it it is very much, it's wrong a lot of the times, especially when it comes to medicine. And so the fear, you know, in academics, the fear is, oh, my God, students are going to use it for plagiarism, blah, 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 blah. In clinical practices, patients are going to use it for information. And I'm going to tell you that because the ChatGPT is a closed database, it's only relying on what is already been inputted. It's not like Google, where it kind of gleans the entire internet to provide you an answer, which is also flawed, as we've all known, like Dr. Google doesn't always answer all the questions and, and you know, you don't have cancer after you put in yeah. the, the, the same is true for chat. Um They're very different systems, but you know, there are times when it is helpful in saying, I'm going to put in these symptoms and give me five differential diagnoses, right? It may or may not be correct, but it may actually point you to a diagnosis that you may not have thought about.
0: Yeah.
1: Because yeah. You know, in the database now, I want to caution everyone because it's I, I put giant asterisks on all of these things because it's it's not an up to date and a continually updated database. So it's closed. If you ask it for references, it's going to give you references from two thousand five, two 2001. Those are in medicine. Those are really old references, and sure, don't, you know, are not going to apply. So I would say use it. I use it. Um, I use it to kind of reformat sentences for myself if i need to there are uses for it for sure but not i don't and i do think that we can use chat gpt in our curriculum
2: mm-hmm. right
1: instead of saying hey students you know what the first thing you tell them don't use this they're going to use
0: it of course of course
1: <laughs> right um and so to me the application of something like chat gpt as an ai is use it use it to point out to students what's wrong with it Find mm-hmm. the errors in that SOAP note. Find the errors in this discharge summary. You know there are ways uh, to use it and infuse it in your curriculum to teach. And so that's what I mean by saying, how do you augment clinical practice? Similarly, you use this tool to augment your education.
0: So there's a health system in Southern California called Alignment Healthcare, and their their chief technology officer has been using AI with their NPs and PAs mm-hmm. at a command station monitoring home health patients who have been discharged from the hospital or patients who have been enrolled in the program because they have demonstrated some fragility that could benefit from a, a higher level of home monitoring via apps, watches, other tools of technology, et cetera. Just one example of that is they'll receive a notification at the command center if a patient has not followed their normal practice of the day. So you have an 80-year-old patient on this system, and you you, know, you, you get a notification that they're, they're not awake yet, and they're almost always awake by 630. And it allows the home health folks to do outreach and to capture patients before they become so critical that they need to be admitted. So So to me, that's kind of like, okay, we're there now. We're there. What yeah. we don't really know, like when AI has the ability to, right now we have to, there's the, the issues, as I understand it, right? You have to um, do deep learning or or programming that of course is, has the potential for bias that we already have and racism that we already have. Yeah. So you got to be very mindful of who's involved in that and what the diversity of the pool of programmers is. But at some point in time, as I understand it, AI will have the ability to program itself, which could make our lives oh. easier or yeah. more difficult.
1: It actually already does. It's just not that good at it. Right?
0: Okay. Right? Okay.
1: Um, and I, I do want to actually touch upon the bias that you have brought in because because all uh, these tools are made by humans. They are have bias in them, and I'm sure you've seen the headlines from I think it was Sydney, uh, which is the which is the AI by Bing, uh, where. You know they were using it. Uh, I think it was a journalist who was using it, and then all of a sudden the AI basically said, I'm in love with you, you need to leave your wife, right? I, I I mean, we it's funny, but it's not funny. Like what happened there, right? So there are a lot of things that are not ready for prime time, and I and that's why I would say rather than fearing it, I think fearing these technologies, I think learning how to use them and augment our, our learning around it is is very helpful. And to your point about this, um, I forget the name of the center you said, Kevin, but basically they're using remote patient monitoring. They're using telemedicine. They're using digital health. They're using the concepts that fall under the umbrella of digital health to maximize patient care, which is where, I mean, I'm saying this is five years from now, but here we are and we're doing it now. And my question is, what are we doing to train our students to be ready to practice on that? Because there are students who are graduating today who will only practice in a telehealth environment their entire careers. Yet how many courses or how have they been taught telehealth in their PA program?
2: Yeah, I think that raises a really good question. And that is, you know, where do we start this conversation? Where's the right place to, you know, ask educators to start really looking at curricula? You know, we've already said, there's already, it's so densely packed. There's so much in PA curriculum. And, those, you know, those PA educators who are listening, who have undergone a curriculum revision know the, the difficulty. And, you know, with a, with a big massive machine, with a thousand working parts, when you start tinkering around the edges, everything that you do has ripple effects. And so, you know, making a curriculum change is a, it's a really difficult thing to do, probably more difficult than, than people, even when they undertake that, that process really even realize how difficult it's going to be. And so, when, you know, when we're thinking about purposeful changes and um, meaningful changes in curriculum, you know, how, where does that conversation begin, first of all, who has to start that conversation, and, um, you know, how do we, how do we think about that?
1: So there, there are a number of ways to do this. First, it'd be great if the ARC would put out some standards around this, because I kind of feel like as much as we all have a love-hate relationship with these standards, they everyone kind of falls in suit when they are official, right? But to me, that's more of a carrot and stick approach, and I, I don't feel like that's that's the most appropriate way to go about it. To me, it's about building curiosity in the current faculty that you have, right, and saying, you know, there's a conference on this. I'd like you to go to it and kind of figure it out. Or um, much more like where, um, you know, uh, I really uh, give a lot of kudos to David back um, at, Pit- at Pittsburgh who ha- who can see the, you know, I go to him with these crazy ideas and he'll be like, okay, go 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 see where, how far it gets you and let's try it out. And let me see if I can find the right people to put you in touch with. And we can talk about this and see. And if it works out great, if it doesn't, great. You know, you need someone who is a visionary like that to help you kind of, carve a path out where there may not be a path. And so I'm very fortunate to work with a number of colleagues. Dave is just one. Uh, I have, uh, you know, Mary Elias, uh, Christina Beck. There's so many who kind of partner with me and sometimes tolerate my ridiculous ideas to say, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's see how far we can go with it. You know, they don't all pan out, but I think part of it is that Fear of failure, fear of putting resources into something that you don't think might might happen or might might come to fruition. And I think there's a little bit of faith that you have to take in terms of faculty. So, if, uh, in terms of faculty development and having vision for yourself, you know, I have always said to every uh, everyone that I need, like, if I can help you in some way, please let me know because I'm happy to help you strategize. I'm happy to look at your curriculum and say this is a good place for you to put X Y Z in because. You're not going to be able to do, it's not a one and done, right? Like this is a multi-year strategic plan that you have to have for your curriculum to kind of evolve as you are, as you are growing, much like many of the other initiatives that we have as a profession infused in our curricula. And DEI, for example, is one of them, right? No one talked about that when I was in PA school. No, I mean, it was not even a term. You know, no one talked about it when I was at my previous job, it was not, it was not a thing, but I think the push came from like the culture and society and our, the needs of our students and where we are going. And I can this to, to, to that. So I would say find people who are like-minded, develop your faculty. If someone's interested in it, yeah. Send them to a conference, have them learn, uh, do it online. I think online education now has become really, really nice and accessible for a lot of uh, programs. And then dare I say, tap into your into your preceptor and your alumni database because you don't know how many of your students are already in that area mm. unless you're in touch with them. And that's that's really the you know the power of crowdsourcing, basically.
2: Right in a small
1: way. So yeah, I mean, there are ways to do it in in small ways. And but it's important to start somewhere. You know, you're not gonna have this huge you know revamp of your curriculum but we all like I if I ask the two of you you can probably think of three courses right now where you could probably put digital health in very easily
2: yeah absolutely
0: yeah and I, I think your point about you know some stuff is is like locked into the curriculum
2: yeah and, you
0: know, are always found in the same courses
2: yeah.
0: but there are also opportunities for lunch and learns and other ways to weave things in throughout the the year that can at least begin to tantalize the students to think about these things before they get out on rotations. And there's also ways for all of us who have already become PAs to go back to school and and get certificates in artificial intelligence or what have you. So I think those are all really good points. I
1: also think I would not underestimate the power of digital health in potentially helping solve our clinical rotation issue that
0: plagues us as a profession yeah yeah that that would be quite an exciting thing for all of us in every health profession right because we're all facing
1: but i know it's something that we always talk about
0: (laughs) wow that's the way to get rich (laughs) 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 maybe not maybe not um you're so you're the second person we've interviewed in our podcast series that had stepped away from traditional PA education to do something in industry. And I wonder if you could just chat a little bit about that decision to join the tech startup and what that was like for you and kind of what you learned from that experience.
1: Yeah. um, So uh, yeah, I worked at a healthcare tech startup uh, for a couple of years. Uh, It actually just ended up aligning right with COVID, which was interesting and fortunate, and all the wonderful things that come with working from home. The person I worked with found me on LinkedIn and um, asked me to start consulting for them, and I did. And I did that for a few months, and and then they, you know, they they're like, you want to come on board full time? And and I, you know, it was great. I was like. Well, I don't know. I've never worked for a startup before. It's a completely different environment. It's also different than academia, right? It's industry. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. I think it was a it was a risk I took that I think paid off. Uh, not and, I, and but and by paid off, I don't mean financially. I mean by in terms of growing my skill set and opening my eyes to yeah. an area, to a field where I feel like in healthcare and academia, I feel like we're really far behind when it comes to all aspects of care. We are not as forward-thinking as tech is. We are not as collaborative as we like to think we are, although we are. But it, you know, there is room to grow in that area. So I was the director of clinical pathways uh, for the startup uh, for t- for two years. We basically helped write and develop uh, clinical. Uh, they were in the surgical space, so surgical uh, clinical pathways in conjunction with um, surgeons. Mm-hmm. And so we would interview surgeons and say, you're doing this surgery, what are you looking for? And to help them truly address outcomes. Uh, We all have had that encounter where you go in and and the surgeon's going to be like, okay, we're going to have a total knee replacement. And it's a 20 minute visit. And after you leave as a patient, you're like, oh my God, I have like 30 more questions. Right. Um, So that's, that's what we were targeting. That patient education piece How do you get, how do you get all their answers, other questions answered, get them ready. You start them off a month before the surgery and start getting them ready. If you need to quit smoking, do you need to stop taking your aspirin at a certain time? Do you need to, all of those things that kind of go into what that surgeon needs so that there's no delay in the procedure itself, that outcomes can be uh, optimized. uh, Readmission rates can be decreased, you know, and then we follow them on the tail end um, up to, depending on the surgery, four to eight weeks out, hand them off to physical therapy. And so it was, it was really, you know, I I led a team of global clinicians who were physicians, they were uh, physical therapists, nutritionists, and it was uh, nurses who were really there. And we were all there with the patient at the core a particular pathway. So it was really wonderful to see that patient education could be at the core of what we're doing. At, and, and that's so in line with what we do as PAs, right? And so I did that for a couple of years. As in tech, that happens uh, happens very often is the startup gets bought out and then there everyone is like, bye-bye, I, we're bringing our own team. And that's basically what happened.
0: I, it strikes really. me that uh, every chance you get to step out of your comfort zone as a, as an adult is another opportunity to grow. And and so I you certainly sound so. like you grew quite a bit from that.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older. I'm not afraid to take risks like I was when I was younger. And, you know, it's because it has every opportunity to do something like this. That is not something I planned on. I have learned from so, uh, yeah, and it was it was through this that role that I found my passion for digital health. I wrote my I wrote my final paper for my doctorate in digital health uh, ethical and policy challenges that we were going to face. So it's you know it I kind of feel like now people are talking about it, but two three years ago when I was doing this, nobody was talking about it because everyone was worried
2: about COVID. At the you certainly are setting an excellent example for just, you know, as Kevin said, pushing, pushing outside your comfort zone and not being afraid to take risks and, and dive into something new and develop new skill sets. I think those are all really good characteristics of, of a leader. And you certainly have a demonstrated, uh, demonstrated history of leadership. So um, talk a little bit about kind of your leadership pathway and how you kind of started into that. You had mentioned that you thought that leadership should be included at least at, at some level in every curriculum. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and, and how kind of your leadership path has evolved throughout your career.
1: I think, you know, my leadership voice, I think I found it partly accidentally, partly at the urging of other people, right? It was when, in my first job as a PA, I was working in a fast truck in an ER. And about two or three months into the job, the, the, the person um, ugh, drawing the blank of the name of the title of their, but whoever did the scheduling basically for the ER, And they were like, you know, th- they were leaving and they're like, well, DP, why don't you take, take this over? Uh, do you want to, do you want to try? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've never done a ER schedule in my life. Like. First, I, I actually, you know, now I think about it, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. What have a pain in the butt, right? But like now, but at that moment I was like, okay, well, why why not try it? But that kind of role snowballed into then my next job where I was in an urgent care and um, I got the opportunity to be the clinical leader of urgent care, student health services and telecom. Telecom is the old school version of the call center with like ask a nurse type of thing. Uh, so old school digital health as I call it. And that was a really great learning experience. And I was supported by an organization to uh, attend uh, something called the Leadership Academy, which was an internal academy to uh, uh, build leadership skills and really put people who are in these roles and give them skills to not burn out, but also do the things that you think you want them to do that are in alignment with the organization's mission and, and vision, right? Like, and they did it right. They they identified the right people and said, okay, we want you to take this course because we think it's going to be important. How do you have a difficult conversation? How do you uh, write policy? How do you write regulations? How do you write all of these things that are in line with our, with our org? And it was through that. And I was the youngest ones who was chosen to participate in that. And I learned a lot through that. And so that, so as I said, like it was there, I was ready. I didn't say no to it, right? Like they like you, we think you should do this. And I'm like, okay. I I didn't know what I was signing up for at that moment, but I was like, why not? You know, someone must see something in me that I don't know. And I think partly, so that is when the shift for me happened as I was like in my, you know, I would say mid to late thirties, when I was starting to say, people were like, oh, you should try this, or why don't you do this? And that point I was like, okay, now I can, I think I feel like comfortable asking for these positions because I feel qualified to have those positions. It's not cockiness or anything like that, but it's more like I, I do think I have the skills to do this. Let me try. And I think that's the part of it. So to me, when I look at the current cohorts of PA students coming through, they all have, I mean, it's it's scary how type A our PA students tend to be, right? They bring leadership skills with them. It's in fact some to almost to a fault that we filter in those leadership skills when we're interviewing why are we not using them why are we not nurturing that why are we not harnessing that we should be and we should be doing it if it's part of our admissions process and you're looking at like oh how many committees were they on and how many did they do and what did they you know what service have they done and you're looking at all of these things why is it
2: forgotten once they get in I think that's really true. And, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard over and over again, people say that, you know, it was just a little shove by someone else. It was just a little push. Sometimes it was even just a comment in passing. I've had people say to me years later, you know, Steph, it was something that you said to me that really made me think I can do this. And, And that actually happened to me as well. You know, when I was thinking about running for the board of PAEA, it was just really sometimes... I think that's a good reminder for, for people who are in leadership positions. Don't forget that, you know, it doesn't always take some big formal action or sending someone to a big, tra- you know, semester long training program, or, you know, a, a degree to get people to just dip their toe in that leadership pool. Sometimes it's just a suggestion that confirms to someone either something that they knew, maybe they felt like they had some skills or abilities that they just needed that little gentle push, or sometimes. Just hearing that someone else believes that in them, it, it might surprise them. So I think that's a really important message to reinforce. And so, to me,
1: I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, to your point, Stephanie, you don't need a degree to have a seat at the table, right? You just have to have an idea and perhaps a little bit of gumption to to say, you know, I'd like to do this. What, what do you What do you think? I also don't want to underestimate the power of your tribe. You know, the people who advise you, the people who, and these can be colleagues, they can be friends, they can be, I'm very fortunate to have really amazing friends who are both in the profession and not in the profession. Uh, But I also have colleagues who are amazingly supportive of kind of, you know, hey, can I run this crazy idea by you? And they'll be like, okay, do you want me to poke holes in your theory? Or do you want me to support you? Or do you want me to do both? And You know, you obviously, depending on where you are mentally with that idea, you may want them to poke holes in the theory, right? But never underestimate the power of the tribe, the mentorship and the guidance that they will give you. They will speak truth to reality for you. And you need people like that. And I I kind of feel, and, you know, it came a little bit later in life for me because I had the nudges, but I didn't have that formal kind of, here are your people, here's your tribe who are going to kind of elevate you and say, you know, you're good at this. I think you should do this. And I would say that we need to nurture that for all of our students, because how else, you know, we, I go, we go to all these conferences and we say, oh, we have faculty shortages. We have clinician shortages. We have blah, 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 shortages. Well, how are we going to solve that if you're not building that pipeline of leaders and faculty and ac- academics and researchers and whatnot? And by the way, research b- is going to change hugely with the shift of digital health and AI. So like,
2: absolutely, you
1: know, we, we need to be kind of thinking of it, thinking of all of these policies or uh, programs or whatever ideas in parallel with each other and how they support each other so that we're not getting lost Um, we're not just kind of saying, oh, I'm going to do this and that's all I'm going to do, right? Like it takes, it takes it does take your entire tribe to help you kind of do that. And every day it's like, oh, I don't know. And I'll call someone, I'll be like, what do you think of this? And they're like, "Deepu, you know how to do this, right? Because you always have moments of self down. Like it's, that's part of the growing and learning process.
0: I mean, these are really fascinating conversations and I think very excited about the future of, Health and future of health education. You know, let's face it, healthcare is is uh, fractured. I don't want to say it's broken, but it is fractured, and it, it is really challenging on the patient side to navigate. Particularly if you don't have the skill, you know, the knowledge and skills like we do. Even even with our skills, it's difficult to navigate these days. And so, we, I do hope digital health transforms the experience for our patients but I'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to talk about the University of Pittsburgh. So we definitely want to highlight your program. You're doing some really unique things. Congrats on your recent approval from ARC for provisional status yes. for your hybrid program.
2: Yeah, and, I'm really excited.
0: Yeah, I bet. So can you can you give us a little bit of a pitch on uh, from a perspective of an applicant? Uh, tell us about the University of Pittsburgh and what's really unique about your program that you're excited to share.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so we have three programs that kind of fall under our department. We have our residential PA program, which is our, our original one, and the hybrid program, which actually just um, started um, in January of this year. And then we have the doctorate program, which is where I, I teach, um, and the doctorate program is focused on quality improvement. So um, all three kind of fall under, under this department, and all three have kind of a, a different mission and vision but I'll talk about the hybrid program because, since that, that's the the newest one. But I think the you know what what we're kind of applicant we're looking for both the residential and hybrid programs are the person who wants to make a difference and really wants to put not only patient care but whatever their whole self is to the profession. And and I say that because it's to me I we don't I we uh, University of Pittsburgh. We want to see the whole you, and we want to see the whole you succeed outside of clinical practice. If clinical practice is, that's what, is what your calling is, and that's what you want to do, but we would love for you to bring whoever you are in all your experiences and the diversity that you bring to the program and really allow us to make an impact, not only in patient, patients' lives, which is one-on-one, but the community that you live in. And that to me is one of the biggest strengths of uh, the Pittsburgh program is the diversity, the diversity of the faculty. In fact, I was telling someone, the Pittsburgh faculty that I work with is the most diverse team I've ever worked with. And it is really wonderful to see all the experiences that kind of bring us all together. And it allows for that diversity of thought because we all talk about diversity and, it's it's wonderful. We should definitely have it. But diversity is more than race, gender, color. It's diversity of thought. It's diversity of experiences and how all of those come together to make a successful program, a successful stu- uh, student, a successful community of uh, providers, educators and teachers who really bring their best to every moment in that, in, in whether it's in the classroom, remotely or in person. And then in the the doctor program that we have um, also launched last year, we're about to graduate our first cohort, we're very excited in April, and they have really set the bar high with for the next cohort, and it's focused on quality improvement. And, you know, it's unique and I kind of half like to joke, I'm glad I have my doctorate, but I think if I had this program as an option, I would have pursued it because the work that these students have done has been visible to their communities and to their departments from day one. They are making a change in workflows, in policy, in telehealth practice, in patient education across the board. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten an email from a student or, um, you know, one of the colleagues who were like, oh my God, this person did this one thing. And it really improved our stats by X, Y, Z. It moved the needle on blah, 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 whatever it may be. And this is how change in healthcare happens. It's incremental, but we need to be able to make that change happen one at a time. And I think that's what these students are doing. And they've done an amazing job. Um, So I can't wait to see all of them in person.
0: So when you think about the three three programs, uh, are there any commonalities? You kind of alluded to bring your whole self. You're looking for somebody that wants to be more than just a clinician that wants to thrive in opportunities outside of clinical work as well. But are there any other tidbits that you'd recommend for those applicants related to paths, GPAs, GREs, Um, anything like that? I'm going
1: to say, I don't know the GPAs off the top of my head, so I'm not even going to pretend to try to guess to what they are. But in terms of paths, I think it's very similar to other programs, but I would say that one thing that I would Ask applicants to do is be authentic in their essays, right? Don't uh don't write someone else's story. <laughs> don't make up a story.
0: Don't use chat GPT to write
1: uh, don't, it. Don't use chat GPT. Exactly. You, we will know. <laughs> we will know. So put your put yourself, your true self, failures, uh, all of it. Because we've all had them. And if you've never had a failure, you haven't grown. So really, I would say the thing that marks that thread. And in fact, the, the doctor program. When you talk about quality improvement, that's exactly what you're doing. You're fixing a failure. You're fixing a glitch in the system, and so it's you. Ha- that thread of like, who are you? What do you want to change? What do you want to bring to the table? Is going to be really important. And then you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of at at the Pittsburgh program is our mentorship program. We take mentorship and student guidance very seriously and uh, seriously, but fun. Also, um, a shout out to Carlos, who is our um, vice chair of Student Success and Wellness. And it's you know it's really, really uh, important that you see yourself in the program. I think a lot of times programs forget that the applicants are interviewing them as much as you're interviewing the applicant. Um, and we're very cognizant of that. We want to put our best foot forward and we expect that for from the student as well. So it's a two-way street.
0: Thank you.
2: So Deepa, we, before we close up, um, first of all, thank you. This has been a really fascinating conversation. And I feel like we could go on and on and on for hours on this. But uh, in the interest of finding an end to our, our episode today, um, we like to close by just asking folks if there's anything that we didn't talk about today or if there are any closing thoughts that you'd like to make anything you want our listeners to hear potential pa students educators those are tend to make up the the largest part of our our listening audience is, is uh, prospective pa students and and pa educators so if you have final thoughts or other topics that you'd like to discuss that we didn't get to today we'd love to we'd love to hear those before we close out
1: yeah i mean i think one thing i'd going to say is don't be afraid to go outside your comfort zone and this applies to faculty educators and students we as faculty sometimes are so busy teaching our students to go outside their comfort zone so that they can learn, that we forget that we can, we have to do the same in order. And I think when uh, I'm sitting here learning about all the digital health technologies, it is, you know, it's it's not something that I was taught. I, I'm, I'm learning it. And so I'm curious about it. So let your curiosity drive uh, your learning. And don't be afraid to say, you know, I don't know this. Who can I? talk to about it. Part of the wonderful thing about learning a new new skill or is um, the community that you get to build and I've been fortunate enough to start building a community in the digital health arena that has been global and has been so helpful in helping my learning, my growth um, and my you know most of all my kids kind of see how technology is being used to make that human connection even more solid. because we hear a lot of uh, negativeness about technology and social media. and yes, that you know, there's always a balance that you have to reach. But I do think technology is the tool that we are all going to need to learn how to use and harness to make ourselves and our students better clinicians.
2: I 100% agree, and thank you for those very wise parting parting words, and thanks for being with us today.
0: Yeah,
1: thank, thank you, you so thank much.
2: You. Thank you for uh, inviting
1: me, and it was an honor to speak to both of you.
0: Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Deepu Patel, for sharing her insights on digital health, artificial intelligence, and the University of Pittsburgh's new developing program that just received their provisional accreditation. Congratulations to them in next week as we speak to Dr. Kim Cavanaugh. She is the Associate Professor and Department Chair of the Physician Assistant Department and the Associate Dean of the School of Medical Sciences in the Morawski College of Health Professions and Sciences at Gannon University. She's been in PA Education for over 20 years and has numerous contributions as it relates to assessment for the PA Education Association. We hope you'll tune in then. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the
2: University of Arizona.